Amen. Well, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians. You had a good time, I think, last week with Brother Rob from Jews for Jesus, and that was a real blessing. And uh, today we find ourselves back in uh, 1 Corinthians. We've been looking at um, this book for 24 lessons now, and the one thing that we have seen is Paul has pointed out very clearly that there was uh, an issue of the, the people in Corinth. Remember, he kind of founded this church, and he spent 18 months there teaching them. And then word got to him that somehow they had defected a little bit. They began to follow uh, the wisdom of the world, and they began even to exalt human wisdom. And really, he wants them to understand that uh, the philosophy of this world and, and worldly wisdom has no place within the church of Christ. And so in chapters 3 and 4, he begins to, um, after excoriating them on human wisdom and philosophy and whatnot, we've talked about that in chapters 1 and 2, now in chapters 3 and 4, he begins to talk about how that affects their view of leadership, and they began, because of their worldly influences, they began to exalt certain human leaders within the body of Christ. That's why in verse 5, or verse 4, it says, when one follows Paul, another follows Apollos, um, or Cephas, Peter, uh, you know, all these different people they were following. And it wasn't the people that they were following, that wasn't the problem. It was their attitude about it. They, they began to stray from what Paul had taught them. And so, as a result, you can imagine if you had a church that's following a bunch of different people, what happens? It begins to fragment. It begins to divide. And so, he begins to point out to them that the body of Christ should not be divided in any way. And yet, here we had the church these believers in Corinth, and they began to all give their own opinion, and they began to spout their own philosophies that they brought into the church, rather than looking to God's Word and God's Word alone. Uh, this has to be the source of truth for us as a church. We can't stray from the Word of God. If you do, then eventually uh, and immediately you veer off God's will in God's plan, and God's purpose for the church. And that's what's happened in so many churches today. They've set the Bible aside. I think it was in Rob's message. He said, boy, it's so nice to be in a church where you actually hear people turning pages when he says turn to a certain verse. And, you know, we may not understand that, but when you begin to visit some other churches, you begin to realize that, wow, you know what? They don't even carry their Bibles to church because everything's up on a screen. Everything's up on the video or whatever it might be. And so you end up bringing up a church of believers who are basically biblically illiterate. And they couldn't find the book of Job if they had to. So, you know, we don't want to do that. So we're focused on the Word of God. And that's what Paul wanted them to be focused on. But they were starting to skew their, their vision. They started to kind of get off message. And so... In verses, chapters 3 and 4, he talks about these divisions and how they were following these worldly leaders. And he starts off in our text this morning, I want to read it for us, in verses 18 to 23, and then we'll look at it um, 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life, death, present, future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now what Paul is doing here, he's kind of summarizing for the Corinthians what he's said to them up to this point. It's a wonderful summary of his arguments. But he starts off there in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. And what's interesting, in the original language, that's in the, the present tense. In other words, it kind of has the idea that you know this is, this is going on continuously. And what he's telling them to do is stop it. Don't allow this to happen. Stop continually deceiving yourself. You know, it's one thing to be deceived by somebody else, but it's one thing to deceive yourself. And there's a lot of people that deceive themselves. We all do it sometimes on occasion. And so he answers the question. He says, if anyone among you thinks to be wise in this age, let him become a fool. That word there is really the word we get moron from. (laughs) Let him become a moron that he may really be wise. So he's trying to point out to them very bluntly, and he's using language that's really in your face, if there's going to be any kind of unity within the church of Christ, if there's going to be any unity here in the Corinthian church, you're going to have to stop, first of all, deceiving yourself. That somehow you got this thing all figured out. Don't rely on your own wisdom. Don't rely on human wisdom. Don't rely on the philosophy of this world. I think we've all probably been in a Bible study where someone reads a passage and you're sitting in a circle. Or maybe you're at a table and the the teacher's up in front, whatever the format may be. But they read a passage of scripture and then they... Kind of go around the room. Well, Dave, what do you think that means? Dave says, Ken, what do you think that means? And they say, and somebody else, and they get, you know, maybe work their way around the room a little bit. Well, let's move on to the next verse. <laughs> like, wait a minute. That's not, that's not wise. What are you doing? You're just giving opinion. Who cares what your opinion is? It's irrelevant. The church does not need your opinion. The church needs wisdom that comes from God, wisdom that comes from his word. And so many times we have people that are refusing to teach through the Bible because you kind of have to teach the Bible then. And so many times people are saying, well, I'd rather teach on, you know, the five stepping stones of faith or you know, the five keys to a happy family or whatever. Now, there's nothing wrong with that on occasion. We all teach topically at times. But when you're not expounding the word of God, if this truly is, if we believe this to be which it is, the word of God, then that's the majority of where we should be spending our time is in the word of God. 
And so if there's going to be unity in the church, you can't have different people popping off, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to follow Ken, I'm going to follow Dave, I'm going to follow John, and, you know, I like the way they teach, I like the way they teach. That's that, what's that do? It breaks down the unity. And this is what was happening in the church of Corinth. Now, he's not saying that you should just throw wisdom out the window, He's not saying there's not some good information out there. Even in the world there is. I gave the example several weeks ago about my car is broken. I'm going to take it to somebody who can fix it. Who has the wisdom, who has the ability to fix it. If they're not a Christian, they're not a Christian. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm not looking for him to bless my car or to pray for my car. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for him to fix it. And sometimes we get these things all mixed up. And so there's a lot of things as far as knowledge in the world that we can learn from, we can grow from. I mean, you think of medical science and all the, the benefits that we, we reap from that each and every day. But what Paul's speaking of here specifically is in the area of your spiritual life as a believer. He's saying in the areas of like salvation and knowledge of God and principles of the Christian life, the origin of life. That's what he's really speaking to. And what was happening was the Corinthians were beginning to listen to <coughs> philosophies and wisdom, and teachings that were not validated from God himself in his word. And so they began to stray from what Paul was teaching them. And that's what he was dealing with. See, you have to conclude this simply. Human philosophy and wisdom has no bearing on the knowledge of God. Absolutely none. It has no bearing on the plan of salvation. It has no bearing on the principles of living the Christian life. And what happens to many churches, where they divide is when people start popping off with their own opinions on things that have no foundation in the Word of God. And they set it up as authority in the areas of maybe spiritual living or the spiritual life. That's when you get division. It's really a form of, you might say, intellectual pride. Well, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't need the Bible. And the church must create an atmosphere in which the Word of God is exalted, it's, it's honored, and it's also submitted to. We should have no equal when it comes to the Word of God. And so Paul is discussing this with them in this letter. And really, he points out that they kind of had a carnal spirit in the Corinthian church. We saw that earlier on in chapter 3. And then last time we were together, we talked about when they will be judged. And it talked there in, in verse 10 about being careful how we build because we're all going to give an account for what we do. 
So he pointed out their prejudices and their presumptions and their pride. He'll point out in chapter 4. But really, he, he begins here with the, the folly of their self-deception. The folly of their self-deception. He doesn't want anyone to be deceived, so he wants all deception to be done away with. But he starts talking, first of all, about the Corinthian self-deception. And he says right there in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, in this world system, let him become a fool that he may become wise. See, the first thing you need to do is to recognize your own self-deception. We're all deceived to a certain degree. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to recognize. I mean, the best way to prepare yourself to recognize self-deception is to what? Is to bury your nose in the Word of God. To make sure that you're constantly filling your heart and your mind with the Word of God. Have a teachable spirit. Let the Holy Spirit reveal those truths to you. Maybe areas in your own life that you're maybe a little deceived by yourself. Romans 8.27 tells us it's God who searches the hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. I mean, we've all probably maybe been in a hurry to get ready to go somewhere. Maybe it's a dinner or something where you're dressing up and maybe you're going to church, whatever. And you're, you're running out of the house and maybe you have a full-length mirror somewhere. You just take one gla- last glance And then you realize, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know that was there, or I didn't know I didn't have that piece of clothing in the right place, or, or a tie on, or whatever you might have to do. And you have to go back, and you have to correct it. Really, you were deceived. You thought you did everything you should have done to go to your meeting, or to go to work, or whatever it is. But you were deceived. And the mirror gave you a reflection of what was real showed you that fact in the moment. And it just took one look, and you realized immediately, oh, the tie was crooked or whatever. And having recognized that, then you took care of it. You were able to rectify it. You were able to change it. I mean, that's really what James tells us, right, in James chapter 1. It's a great section of Scripture. It speaks to the idea of this imagery of a mirror in verse 22. He says, don't do what I just mentioned in verse 19 to 20. He talks about the anger, the man, slow to anger, all this stuff. And then filthiness, put all this stuff away. But in verse 22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And look at what it says, deceiving yourself. See, there's many people in the church today, beloved, that are hearers only of the Word of God. They hear it. They expose themselves to it. They listen to sermons. They listen to Christian music. They have all the Christian lingo down. But they themselves are deceived. He says in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
When I, when I, whenever I read that verse, I don't know why, I always think of those mirrors that you ladies have that when you put your face in front of me, it just like blows you up and it's like you can see like into the pores. just freaks me out. I mean, that's kind of what it's talking about. It's about talking about just staring at yourself in the mirror, one of those big mirrors that magnifies every little pore in your skin. He says, if you do that, you look intently at your natural face in the mirror. And it says in verse 24, for he looks at himself and what? And goes away. And at once, immediately, without another thought, he forgets what he was like. That's the self-deceived individual. The person that thinks they got all their ducks in a row. That thinks everything's just perfect. They're, they're portraying themselves as the, the example of spiritual perfection. Because they're doing all these things right. They're checking the box. But it really says you could be deceived. Because maybe you're not doing what God wants you to do. You forget what you look like when you looked in that mirror. You forget that maybe you needed a little ointment here, a little makeup there. You totally forget about it. You might as well not even have had the mirror is the indication. The word of God is the mirror that God has given us. When we pour our hearts and our minds into the word of God. What does it do? It gives us a reflection of his holiness, of his perfection. And what does that show? It reveals our imperfections. And what does that do? It it causes us to be humble. It causes us to bow our knee before God, to cry out for his mercy, for his grace, because we realize we could never measure up to what God wants us to. Only through Christ are we able to meet the standard whereby God calls us to be saved. But look at verse 25 in James 1. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. In other words, they may not like what they look like, like when they're looking into the law of liberty. But it says they persevere. They don't run away because they realize that what they're seeing is a legitimate reflection of themselves, even though it may hurt. I don't think any of us like when someone comes up and says, you know, hey, you know, I got to share something with you, brother. <laughs> You're like, oh man, here it comes. What I do now? And they share something that maybe is awry in your life or whatever. Nobody likes to go through that process. It's not fun. But it's a prideful person that won't hear it. It's the prideful person that points the finger back at that individual. So, yeah, well, who are you to judge me? Without acknowledging, well, yeah, what you're saying is right. <laughs> you're right. I shouldn't have said it or I shouldn't have done it or whatever. See, we need to be humble before God and before others. 
And that's what the Word of God does. That's what the perfect law does. It humbles us. But you have to persevere through that humbling. And he says, there being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In the next sentence, if anyone thinks he is religious, now that's the problem. We have a lot of religiosity today in our churches. Religion won't save you, my friend. Religion will damn your soul to hell as fast as anything else. Because religion is just a, an attempt by a sinful man to reach out to a holy God, hoping that somehow he'll jump through enough hoops that God will save him in the end. That's what religion is. Any religion. It's based on one word, D-O, what you do. See, that's not the relationship that Christ offers us. Our relationship with Christ isn't based on what we do. It's based on what? What was done for us on Calvary. We need to be reminded of that. It tells us in the Word of God how to put those things that are wrong, how to, how to put them right, just like a mirror. In the Old Testament, I thought this was interesting, before they were sent into the sanctuary to minister, the priests had to pay a visit to the brazen laver. And the laver was made of bronze, brass. And it was polished, and it was, the base of it was almost like a, a looking glass. Exodus 38, 8 describes it as. And it contained water, which is another symbol of the word of God. And as the, the priest would approach the laver, the, the, the mirrors would reveal their defilement. They would see the reflection. And the water was used to re, remove their defilement. See, that's the, the purpose, that's the, the goal of the word of God. It's, it's double action. It reveals things to it, but it also has the power to remove the defilement that we come to face. Self-deception does not die easily. And so Paul recommends here that when we see what fools we have been in our own self-deception, what he says is we go to the other extreme and become fools indeed in the eyes of the world by wholeheartedly embracing the true wisdom of God's word. You all remember the story of the new tribe missionaries who were down in Ecuador to minister to the Aka Indians. And they were murdered there. They were martyred there by that tribe. And when the world found out what happened to these young men, educated men, these weren't just dummies off the street, these were educated men. The world asked this question, to what purpose was this waste? Almost sounds like Judas Iscariot when the woman washed the feet of Jesus with the expensive perfume. What a waste. Here you had these martyrs, bright young men, college trained. All of them with, according to the world, promising careers. 
But what they did, they turned their back on all of that, and instead they chose to follow God's purpose and plan for their lives to evangelize one of the most remote and barbarous, barbaric tribes in the Indian world in South America. What was the reward? The reward was an early, violent death at the hands of the people they sought to reach. That was the reward. And we know the quote from Jim Elliott, one of these young martyrs. He had his own answer to those who branded him as a fool for burying himself in the jungle on the equator for the cause of Christ. His quote is this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, Paul would have endorsed that mentality. He would have endorsed that statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So Paul reveals here this futility, back to Corinthians, of self Deception. The folly of it is first you have to recognize it, you have to rectify it, you have to go to the Word of God and allow it to change your heart, your mind. But in verse 19, it says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's a mockery. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. The quotation is from the book of Job. You can look it up. Chapter 5, verse 13. By the way, this is the only time the book of Job is quoted in the New Testament. Interesting. The remark occurs in the book of Job when the first speech of Eliphaz, in which he suggests Job must have been a very great sinner because of all this stuff that was happening in his life. You remember Job, right? I mean, he lost everything. Everything. He's tested. And Eliphaz said, well, this man was wealthy. He had a wonderful family. He had land. He had everything. And he lost everything. He even lost his health. The person was stripped down to the point where he was laying on a a rock quarry, scraping boils off his skin. And as a kind of added injury, the only thing he was left with was his wife, who basically looked at him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. We all need that kind of wife, don't we? Boy. The Bible says here that he catches the wise in their craftiness. That word catch there signifies to grasp with the hand. And that word only occurs here. The word craftiness is always used in a bad sense in the New Testament. It kind of talks about bad conduct, bad character. It's used in Luke chapter 20, verse 23, when the Lord Jesus instantly saw through the 
his enemies when they asked him if it was lawful for a Jew to pay taxes imposed by Rome. You remember that? Luke says he perceived their craftiness, their ill intent. And he asked them why they were tempting him. See, the classic old example of God taking the wise in their own craftiness is found in the story of Jacob and Laban. Remember that? Jacob was just full of guile. He, his craftiness, he, and he practiced it on his twin brother Esau. Well, all that came home to roost when Esau threatened to murder him. And as a result, Jacob had to flee. And he ran to, into the, the hands of his uncle, his uncle Laban. And the Bible says he was just as crafty as Jacob. Big mistake there, pal. Because he was a lot older and he was a lot more experienced. And God used Laban to discipline Jacob. He took him in his own craftiness. And in the end, Jacob, you remember the story, triumphed over Laban. Not as a result of craftiness, which he too practiced in the dealings with his wily uncle, but simply because God chose to bless and protect him. Something even Jacob himself eventually acknowledged. In the end, too, Laban lost his daughters, his grandchildren, and the wealth of Jacob along with Jacob's invaluable service, all because of his craftiness. See, Paul wanted to remind the crafty ones in Corinth who were seeking to build following, to build a a kind of a work of their own following at his expense, that they had God to reckon with, not just Paul. And that God would see through all their little schemes. So God sees through the clever man. He says that in verse 20 there again. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. That's a quotation from Psalm 94.11. He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Demands the psalmist and leading up to the statement that Paul quotes. See, Paul says the the thoughts of this world's clever people are futile in God's sight. They're nothing. The word means void of results. Sometimes in, in Acts, one time in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, the same word is used of idolatry. It's futile. So in the church of Corinth, you had the the party of Cephas. They were indulging in craftiness. And and the Apollos party, they were promoting cleverness. God could see all that. He saw everything. Neither party had God's blessing. I'm not talking about the leaders of that party. I'm talking about the people that were unduly following those teachers. The teachers themselves were just doing what God called them to do. What they were trying to accomplish would come to nothing. As we spoke of last time, and it will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. They had their thoughts. 
means their reasonings. They could pile up all kind of clever arguments. The word is used by the Lord in the parable of the wicked husbandman who plotted together to murder the son of the owner of the vineyard and seize the property for themselves in Luke 20. In Luke 12, he used the same word to describe the logic of the rich, fuel, the rich fool who planned to build a bigger and better barn. Do you remember that? Not knowing that his time had run out. See, Paul evidently thought that all these schemes of these different divisions in the Corinthian church were equally in vain. And so he basically says, none of this should be going on. And he wants them to understand that these distinctions should go away. And that's what we see here in verse 21. He begins to point out, he says, so let no one boast in men. In other words, you shouldn't be following individuals. We live in a day and age today where the church is made up of this celebrity mentality. You have pastors that think they're rock stars, I think. He tells us what is expected of us. He says, therefore, let no man glory in men. They're only men. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. You know, sometimes we get to go to different conferences. Sometimes you go to these conferences and you think, man, it's almost like they're worshiping these individuals. And that's not the mentality of the leader or the the person that's hosting the conference or whatever. That's not their mentality. But the people that go there are very much in that mindset. So we don't need to follow men. We need to follow the what? The Word of God. We need to follow the Bible. We don't need to be overly concerned with men who even when greatly used of God, they're still just men. They're frail. They're prone to error. They're able to fall. And flaws can be found in every one of them. I remember when I was at the Shepherd Conference one year, there was a seminary student, I think he was either leading a breakout session or something, and he, he was talking about when he was going through his class and preaching. And he was asked to preach at the student chapel. And he was so intimidated because his mentor and president of the seminary and everything, John MacArthur, would be sitting right there in the first row. And he remembered... His wife telling him afterwards, What's wrong? what was wrong with you? I mean, leading up to this chapel today, it's just, I mean, you know, it's not like you've never done this before, but you were just so unnerved and just, he said, don't you get it? She said, what? He, I mean, John MacArthur was sitting, you know, 10 feet away from me as I'm teaching on a text of scripture. And she looked at him and she goes, really? Have you ever thought about God's hearing you preach that same message? 
Maybe you should be a little more concerned about what God thinks about your message than Mr. MacArthur. And it convicted his heart. See, sometimes we forget where our loyalties should lie. We tend to follow men. You think of the men of the Bible. Abraham was a great man. I mean, he was called the friend of God, right? But what did he do? He failed when he went down to Egypt. He failed when he went into Philistia. Moses himself was a great man, but he failed when he hit the rock a second time. David was a great man, but he failed in his relationship, his illicit relationship with Bathsheba again when he numbered Israel. Even modern day theologians, Calvin was a great man, but he was not averse to burning his enemies at the stake. Luther was a great man, but he never did clearly see the error of Rome's doctrine of transubstantiation. Even Charles Spurgeon was a great man. He disagreed with John Nelson Darby, a far greater scholar than he would ever hope to be. See, we all have feet of clay. It's best not to glory in men. That's what's expected. What's explained to us? He says here in verse 21, very clearly, first of all, don't boast in men. But then he says, for all things are yours. Think about that statement. Paul begins with our possessions in Christ. For those of us who have trusted Christ, those of us who have a relationship with Christ, we're in Christ. All these things are ours. We have no need to look anywhere else or to anyone else other than Christ and his word. And he he says there, look at the things that are ours. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, doesn't matter who. There are people who liked Paul because of his strengths, while other apostles were content to kind of huddle at home. Paul went out and evangelized the Western world. I mean, he basically wrote the book on foreign missions. In Paul were combined the Talmudic, the, the Talmudic Jew, the Greek scholar, the Roman citizen. He probably had ten times the genius of Caesar. He was spirit-filled, Christ-centered, and his God-enthroned personality drew countless people to him. But then you had somebody like Apollos, and they were drawn to him because of his style. He spoke very eloquently. He could hold people spellbound for hours. He had the eloquence of an archangel, it seemed. Golden-tongued orator. Or even Cephas, because of his stand. He was wedded to the faith of the fathers. His admirers would say something like, well, after all, the Lord did not give the keys of the kingdom 
to Paul or Apollos. He gave them to Peter. That's the one I want to follow. He was the one who preached at Pentecost. He was the one who came to Cornelius. Besides, he was one of the Lord's earliest disciples. I mean, who can know the mind of the Lord better than Peter? That's who I'm going to follow. And what Paul say? Paul says, yeah, that's true, that's true, but you know what? We're all yours. <laughs> We're all yours. It's not a case of this one or that one. It's not a case of following this person or that. We're all yours because we all serve the same Christ. Not only no matter who, but no matter where. I mean, Paul evangelized all over the place. And you know what? Alexandria was no more important to him than Corinth. Because he had a, a strong burden for people to be one to Christ, no matter where they were. I mean, you think of somebody like David Livingston. Livingstone, who basically the, the missionary, again, time and time again, he faced death. He had a fever some 30 occasions that made, put him basically out of commission. Savage tribes threatened him. Evil tongues had slandered his marriage. His left arm hung useless because it was crushed by a lion paralyzed yet he stood a grand old man before the student body of glasgow university with his voice speaking in an unwavering resolve i'm going back he said cheer after cheer rang out through that great hall david livingstone was a man who knew that the world was his for the cause of Christ. Who, where, no matter what. <laughs> you have two options here, life and death. Both are ours. As believers, we get to live a glorious life here on this earth, filled with the Holy Spirit, being able to go out and to communicate the word of God, the precious gospel to those who have yet to hear, seeing God use us in ways that we could never even understand or believe. It was Jesus himself who said, I come that they might have what? Life. And that they might have it more abundantly. No one has any control over the advantages or the handicaps under which our lives are launched. One person may be born a beggar, another a billionaire. One person is born handsome. Another one, well, they'll need some help. One person is born with an incredible genius mind. Another one could be born hopelessly retarded. But no matter what, see, when we are born again, we receive the gift of life. The gift of life. 
The story of Fanny Crosby, when she was six weeks old, she caught a common cold. The doctor prescribed a hot mustard ailment to it. And as a result, Fanny Crosby was blinded for life. When she was five, sympathetic friends and neighbors pooled their money together and sent her to a New York specialist. Sadly, he shook his head. Nothing could be done. Poor little blind girl, he said. Fanny Crosby came to know Christ. And he turned her tragedy into triumph. Because Fanny Crosby learned to live. And became a blessing. And a benediction to millions. She was a hymn writer to the church of her day. And great revivals under such as D.L. Moody and others were borne along on the wings of Fanny Crosby's hymns. She actually wrote one hymn as her personal testimony. It says, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell, for I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Are you living for Christ? The other side of that is death. We have life, we have death. It's a common theme lately. But Christians are the only ones who really know how to die. I mean, some worldly people have shown how to die bravely. Some have died with bravado. But I think it's the follower of Christ, the believer, who knows how to die blessedly. The story of England's famed Queen Elizabeth. Her path to the throne was perilous, but once firmly there, she reigned supreme in the hearts of her subjects. Good Queen Bess, they called her. She told, she's quoted as saying, I have the body of a weak woman, but I have the heart of a king. And a king of England, too. She made England great. Her court was crowned with men of genius. Poets and playwrights ran around her throne. But the one thing she couldn't do, she didn't know how to die. She chased her doctors from her room. She was afraid to go to bed lest she die in her sleep. She piled cushions on the floor and stubbornly refused to move. She fought death inch by inch as she had once fought Spain. Even as the dreadful moment arrived, she cried, All my possessions for a moment of time. You flash back to David Livingstone. Here he is back in Africa on his knees. 
living among the bogs in the marshes, a remote village, all alone except for his native helpers. He has walked as long as he can, ridden as long as he can, been carried as long as he can bear it. Now he's at the end of his utter strength. His feet are too ulcerated to bear contact with the ground. And his body is so emaciated, it frightens him to look at it. It's filled with internal hemorrhaging. It's draining away every little bit of strength he has. A drizzling rain is falling outside his tent, and his fever In his fever, he babbles of the fountains and sources of the Nile. The black boys who cared for him, almost as worn out as their master, fall asleep. At length, one of them wakes up. A bleak gray dawn is breaking. He creeps into his master's tent. The white man is not in bed. He's on his knees. Kneeling beside his bed, his body stiff and cold. Their great master is dead. There was no other white man within hundreds upon hundreds of miles. There was not even a woman's hand there to close his eyes. There was no friend to be found to fortify him in the end. He died alone. No. Not alone. For into his tent that night there came his dearest friend Dr. Livingstone, I presume? And he took him home. Life and death. Realities in our life. In closing, he says here also when things present, things to come. See, our present circumstances, we may not realize this, beloved, but are God's gift to us. Because he's thought it all out. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows the burden you're carrying. He knows the trials and tribulations that are occurring in your life day after day. He is too loving to be unkind and too wise to make any mistakes. He knows just what we need when we need it. He knows all about us. Whether things present, which might be that irritable boss that you just wish would go away, or that unsaved son or daughter, or maybe that financial crisis or a serious illness. He has it all under his control. When Peter tried walking on the waves at the bidding of Jesus, he made a few successful steps, but then he began to sink. Terrified, he called out to Jesus. Jesus. 
I'm sure he never forgot that experience. He learned that things which were over his head were already under the master's feet. So come what may, we can know that he knows and that he knows how to temper the wind when needed. Also the future, things to come in this life and in this life to come, all of it is ours. We can face the things tomorrow because he's in control. We can face them with courage. We can face them with confidence. You remember the story of Martin Luther. He was given until tomorrow. He was called before the authorities of Rome. And they pointed at his books. And they said, there is enough errors in these to burn a hundred heretics. Two questions, Mr. Luther. Did you write them? And if so, are you prepared to retract them? Luther agreed that he had written them. As for the second question, whether he would recant, he asked for time. They gave him time. They said, you have till tomorrow. Tomorrow, things to come. What thoughts must have flooded his mind? The shame of recanting, the possibility of being tortured and burned at the stake, things to come. He spent the night in prayer. God, stand by my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Christ, who is my defense, my shield, my strong tower. Well, the next day came. Once again, the lone monk stood before the glare and glitter of Europe's most brilliant court, and he faced the question again, do you recant? And seizing opportunity, like Paul before Felix and before Agrippa, Martin Luther began to speak, I have written against the papacy and the doctrines of the, the papists Their false doctrines, their scandalous lives, and their evil ways are known to all mankind. At once he was silenced. Will you or won't you recant? I cannot, and I will not recant. The words came out boldly and clearly. He looked around at the vast assembly, gazed on all who were mighty in power in this world, on all who were standing before him. Here I take my stand, he said. I cannot do otherwise. So help me, God. No matter who, no matter where, no matter what, no matter when, all are ours in Christ. Those are our positions. And he points out that's because we have that position And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What more can be said of that? We all belong to Christ, beloved, and he belongs to God. One of the things that is very clear in my mind lately, one of the things that God has given us as believers is the gift of death.
It may not be what you are asking him for. It may not be what you want. Nevertheless, he himself says it is his gift to us. Death is God's gift to your beloved who's gone on before. It's God's gift to you. When you understand that for the believer, death will bring an immediate end to their pain, the second you close your eyes as a believer, the next time you open your eyes, you are looking straight into the face of your Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Death is God's gift to us. God will comfort us when that time comes. He will heal the racking pain and torment that goes on in our bodies in this life. He will help you to get on with your life. You are his, and he is God's. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our lives in perspective. Father, we know that in Christ all these things are ours, that you will hold us fast. But Lord, I'm praying this morning for those who may not know you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they've never cried out to you, asked you for forgiveness of their sin. Maybe they've never repented, they've turned from their sin to the Savior. God wants to change your heart today. He wants to make you a new person in Christ. He wants to transform you from the inside out. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of praying more prayers. It's not a matter of doing certain things to earn God's favor. It's a matter of trusting in the work that Christ has done for you on Calvary. He died in your place. He took your sins upon himself and said, I will pay the price. I will bear God's judgment for you. We've all sinned. There's not a person in this room today who could say they're perfect. They've never sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short, the Bible says, of the glory of God. We've all sinned. That's why we need a Savior, to forgive us of our sin. Don't trust one more second or hour in your religiosity to save you because it will not. It's only when you drop to your knees and realize that it's in Christ, in Christ alone, salvation is found. There's no other name given among men under heaven that you must be saved. So I pray that even today that you would cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will answer and he will save you. Father, I pray for our time across the hall that you would bless our food, our fellowship. Just bless our day. Pray that as we call or reflect or spend time with our mothers, that you would make that time a blessed time. And Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.